Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in Acts chapter number 22. We're continuing in our 66th or 67th message, going verse by verse through the book of Acts. This morning, we've been here for about two years, I guess, on Sunday morning, something like that. And uh, we're, we're making the home stretch. We're in the last third of the book, I guess maybe a little less than the last third, maybe the last fourth or so. And uh, I've enjoyed this series. Generally speaking, in sports, what's more exciting and entertaining, offense or defense? Offense, right? What gets celebrated more, a touchdown or a tackle? A touchdown, you've got dances. Now, sometimes on a sack, they'll try to do a sack dance, but you've got all the celebrations and all of that for touchdowns. What's more exciting, a slam dunk or a steal? Slam dunk. They don't have a steal contest at the All-Star Weekend. They have a slam dunk contest. What's most more exciting, a home run or catching a pop fly? Offense, generally speaking, is more entertaining, more exciting than defense. What gets you more money in your contract, offense or defense? I looked it up. The NBA Defensive Player of the Year for three of the last four seasons is a, a man from France by the name of Rudy Gobert. And Rudy Gobert plays for the Jazz. He's been three of the last four years, NBA Defensive Player of the Year. His annual salary, nothing to shake a stick at, $26 million a year. Not bad. $26 million for blocking people's shots. Not a bad salary at all. Then I looked it up. The last four years, the NBA scoring champions. There are two, two guys that have been the NBA scoring champion the last two years. James Harden and Steph Curry. Some of you had no idea who Rudy Gobert was, but maybe you've heard one of those names, James Harden or Steph Curry. And James Harden, not only is, 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 he not, is he good offensively, he's known for literally not being able to play nearly any defense. And I know that he's on the Nets now. That was a, a season ago or so. But he plays almost no defense. Steph Curry, the greatest shooter to ever play the game. And that's not even arguable. Hey, Jabin, you're going to make a groan like that. Who you got? Who's the best shooter of all time? Who? Kobe? I didn't say the best scorer. Javen, go back to sleep back there. All right. And I don't even know that Kobe's the best scorer. We'll have this argument later. And for any rational person, Steph Curry is definitely the greatest shooter to ever play the game of basketball. I'm not even a Warriors fan. But uh, anyways, you know and uh, see how he, he, he was asleep during Rudy Gobert. You wake up for offense. And people understand about what's happening there. But I looked, and these guys' salaries for shooting the ball, both over $40 million a year. 35, 40% higher than the defensive player of the year. And uh, you go to net worth, and it gets even more when you factor in endorsements. Rudy Gobert, from according to Google, his net worth is estimated around 40 to 50 million, his net worth. Steph Curry and James Harden, both over 150 million. Three times more net worth for shooting rather than blocking shots, offense or defense. The moral of the story, Pastor Ryan, what does this have? to do with your message. I have no idea. But the moral of the story, kids, work on your jump shots, not your defensive slides, all right? But the reality is we love offense. And great teams need offense. But do you know what else they need? 
They need defense. It's been said, defense wins championships. My message this morning is entitled, Defense Wins Championships. In Acts in chapter number 21, where we, we're going to be in Acts 21, we're going to start in Acts 22, where we find ourselves from Acts 13, where we've been over the last many months, Acts 13 to Acts 21, it covers about a decade. A decade of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. It covers his three missionary journeys. And in this decade, the Apostle Paul has been on, uh, uh, on arguably, I guess I could say, so that Javon won't groan again, arguably the greatest offensive run of any Christian in history. He's been out preaching, preaching the gospel, gaining ground, planting churches, reaching thousands of people. He's been out spreading the gospel and all, gaining new ground all over the place. That The church has been on the move. It's been moving forward. It's been on offense from Acts 13 to Acts in chapter number 21. Believers are growing. God's work is moving forward incredibly. An unparalleled, uh, unparalleled run of gospel offense, if you will, for about a decade on these three missionary journeys. And now where we start today in Acts 21, moving to the end of the book, it's a, a scene change. It's a shift in the narrative. We leave the, the eight or nine chapters of Paul on offense, and Paul's ministry changes to a ministry on the defense, if you will, defending his ministry. And for the next, for the rest of the book, we're going to see Paul defending his faith, defending his teachings, defending his ministry. We're going to see him give six different defenses before different audiences. This morning, he's going to defend himself before an angry mob. He'll give defenses in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, in Rome, in front of mobs, rulers, religious leaders, government leaders, Festus, Felix, and others. And by the way, before I jump in, as we're kind of having in our study a little bit of a shift, instead of following Paul's journeys, now he's still going to be journeying to some different places, but instead of following his church planting journeys, his evangelist work, he's going to move more into a, a defender of the faith. And, and as we see this, it's a reminder, I think, for all of us that all of our lives and ministries will have different seasons. The last eight or nine chapters, seven or eight chapters of this book of Paul's life and ministry are going to look very different than the first seven or eight chapters of his ministry. Much of the next few chapters is going to be Paul from prison. He's going to be chained up in Rome for two years. There's one verse where we're going to see where he's silent for two years. His ministry is going to look very different, but it doesn't mean it was any less important or any less valuable or any less used of God and it's a reminder for all of us, there are different seasons in our lives. There will be seasons of our life where we are, it feels like, gaining ground. Then there will probably be some seasons where it feels like we're just tilling that ground, seeking for it to be fruitful. And sometimes you can maybe feel like I'm stuck in mud or am I making any progress? And you're planting seeds and you're it's seasons of preparation and, and doing that. And then there might be some seasons of our life where we're defending the ground that we've gained from attacks and from enemies. And, and all of those are vital for the sake of our lives. Don't compare your season with someone else's season. You may be in an exciting season on offense or a difficult, tiring season on defense. What's more exciting, planting new churches full of excited new converts or defending your faith from prison? I think all of us would agree 
planting new churches with excited new converts is more exciting than defending your faith from a prison cell. But God had Paul do both. There are seasons of our lives of offense and defense, if you will. It's full of different seasons. Today is a little bit different of a message. It's really the foundation because there's kind of a a, a shift in his ministry. It's the foundation that's going to set us up for the next several weeks and months of our study in the book of Acts. I want you to read Acts chapter number 22, verse number 1 aloud with me. Acts 22, verse number 1 aloud. Ready? Begin. Men, brethren, and fathers... Hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. Brother Jay's back here, has a doctorate in Greek, reads his Bible in Greek every day. From my limited Greek understanding, that word defense is the word apologia, I believe, in Greek. And it means a formal defense of 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 a belief, of an opinion, of something. It's where we get our word apologetics. A formal defense of a position, that defense, I I make my defense, my apologia. I want us to see now, go back where we finished last Sunday morning. I want us to see what led to Paul being put on the defense. We finished up last week in Acts 21 and verse number 17. and, And you'll recall I preached a message entitled, Choose Your Hard. Some people told Paul not to go to a certain city. They said, when you get there, you're going to be bound in chains. Don't go. It's not easy. And and we talked about the fact that that they interpreted, if it's not easy, then it must not be of God. And we saw that just because something's not easy doesn't mean it's not God's will in our lives. And don't buy into this prosperity gospel idea that whatever God has for you is going to make your life exponentially easier. Serving God does make your life better. And sometimes there are things that are easier. Jesus said, my yoke is um, easy, my burden is light. And there are things, but just because something's hard doesn't mean it's wrong. Or doesn't mean it's not God's will. And so he was wanting to get back to bring an offering from the Gentile churches to this city. Anybody remember what city Paul was heading back to? Talk to me now. Three of you from last week. That encourages me. He was heading back. A little spoiler alert. It's in verse 17. He was heading back to what city, church? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's going back into Jerusalem. And that is the end of his third missionary journey. He's back in Jerusalem. And he's here, and it's been prophesied to him, when you get there, you're going to be put in chains. Now, let's, let's see where we're at. Now, I want us to walk through this whole story, this whole narrative here with Paul back at Jerusalem in this new season of his ministry. And today's message format's a little different. I'm just going to walk through the passage, give you a few summary thoughts, each one. And there might be a, a different piece that's applicable to different people here today. But I want us to see, first of all, when he got to Jerusalem, we see, uh, we see in Paul's life memories to rejoice about. Look at verse number 18. Verse 18, so he gets to Jerusalem in verse 17, the brethren received us gladly, so everything's good. Verse 18, and the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, one of the leaders of the church at Jerusalem, and all the elders were present. So James, one of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, spiritual leaders there, the elders, they're there. This is the, the, the mother church, if you will, the church at Jerusalem, the one that, where, where the disciples, when they had started after Jesus' ascension, Verse number 19, and when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. They got together, and Paul's first focus was to let them know how good God had been and how powerful he was. And may I just stop 
and parenthetically interject right here, it's a good thing to look back at the goodness of God in your life. Thanksgiving should not just be one Thursday in November for the Christian. The Bible says Thanksgiving should be in all the time, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, and, and I've been convicted, I've heard a statement along the lines of, if you woke up tomorrow for only the things that you thank God for today, what would you have? We take God's blessings and God's working in our lives for granted so easily, don't we? And he gets there to the church at Jerusalem, and particularly, he didn't just say, oh, it's, how's everything been? Oh, it's been good. No, particularly, let me tell you about this life that was changed, and let me tell you about this church that was planted, and let me tell you about this miracle that God did, and let me tell you about this one that got baptized, and let me tell you about what happened here, and how God showed himself strong and mighty there, and he's looking back at God's goodness. And may I just stop here, it's not my message, but ask you, how is your Thanksgiving today? We get so focused on what we have to do today and what might happen tomorrow, we forget to thank God for all that he did yesterday, don't we? Too often as Christians, we, we talk about all of our difficulties, our struggles, our burdens, what's going on in America and the world and COVID and masks and the Olympics and this and that and politics and president and, and governor and, and all of these things. And, what, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be informed and I'm not saying as Christians we shouldn't be salt and light, but we get so focused on what is happening today and what might happen tomorrow that we forget to praise God for who he is and all he's done yesterday. Paul gets here and there's some memories to rejoice about. Paul says, I want you to rejoice with me. By the way, this shows the power of the gospel because for Jews to be rejoicing about good things in the lives of Gentiles was not real common. And the Jewish church, he says, I want you to rejoice with me about what God is doing in the Gentiles. Too often as Christians, we talk about our difficulties, our struggles, our burdens, rather than rejoicing in our victories, our blessings, and showing the joy of the Lord. Christian, how is your rejoicing? Oliver Wendell Holmes was a member of the U.S. Supreme Court for 30 years. He was an amazing man with an amazing mind, a wit. His work was amazing. It earned him the unofficial title at the time as the greatest justice since John Marshall. At one point in Holmes' life, he explained his choice of career by saying this, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Those around us, do they see the joy of the Lord in our lives? Do we rejoice about who God is and what he's done and how, how he's come through and how he's been faithful? Memories to rejoice about. It's a good thing to look back at how, God, how good God's been in your life. It's also a good thing to rejoice with others. Look at verse number 20. Would you read verse 20 aloud with me? Ready? begin. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, thou seest brother, we'll stop right there because that's going to 28. Oh, we'll, we'll read the second half of that verse. That's going to go into our next point. The first half of that verse, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they glorified the Lord. Rather than find what was wrong with what Paul had done or how he had done it, they rejoiced. Aren't we that way if we're not careful? We see God working in another person's life or in another family or in another church or in another minister or in another country. And our first instinct, if we're not careful, is to find out what's wrong. Well, I don't know if they really meant that. And I don't know, well, did you see they did that thing kind of different than us? And I don't know about that. And I don't know about this. And what happened here at the church of Jerusalem? Paul said, God's working in people 
people that look different than you, people that talk different than you, people that sing different songs than you sing. They didn't grow up with the Hebrew hymnal. They sing differently than you. They have different backgrounds and upbringings and traditions and God's working in them. And what did the church of Jerusalem do, church? The church rejoiced, God's at work. What did Paul say? There are some people that preach the gospel trying to hurt me. And what did Paul say? And when they do, I rejoice, yea, therein I will rejoice that the gospel is preached. Go ahead, Christian. It's okay to rejoice when God works in somebody else's life. You don't have to find out why they don't deserve that blessing. I don't want to get too far off this, but you've heard me say this before. God's blessing is not a limited commodity. He doesn't have some limited amount of blessing, and when he throws it on someone else, then you are now, you have less piece of the pie available to you. That's not how God works. You can rejoice if God blesses Joe and Renee Walsh and not tear it down. Well, yeah, I don't think they really deserve that. I know this about them and their family, and I know this about, uh, you don't need to be that. Well, I know this about that church, and they do some things that way. And, and I'm not talking about compromise uh, over, over doctrine. I'm not talking about not standing firm for the truths of Scripture. Those that come to our church, you know my, my spirit on that. I'm talking about a spirit that is unable to rejoice when God uses and blesses someone that might be a little different than us. It's a good thing to rejoice with others. They glorified God with Paul. Paul had ministered in very different ways and to very different people than the leaders here in Jerusalem, yet they rejoiced together, a good example for us all. But then I want you to see what, they could, what the elders at Jerusalem, they described. Look at the end of verse number 20. Thou seest, brother, so they rejoice, they glorify God. Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. God's been doing some great things here too, Paul. And notice the last statement. Would you read from and to law aloud with me? Ready, begin. And they are all zealous of the law. The leaders of Jerusalem, they describe a misplaced focus. They say now God is working great here in Jerusalem too, Paul. There are an amazing number of Jews. We have to understand that, that, that the Jews in the Bible, most of them were religious Jews. They grew up, they knew the Old Testament, they knew the 600 laws. That's what a Pharisee is, somebody that took pride in trying to do all of those laws. They grew up with all of these traditions, these feasts. They knew much of Scripture, but they didn't know Christ. They knew how to obey a list of rules, but they didn't have a relationship with the Savior. And they say here, they say, now we've seen a bunch of people saved too, but they're zealous. Now they're, they're even more zealous than before for the law. Why? Because now they know God, they want to please him, and they've been taught their whole lives the way that you please him is by keeping his rules. So let's try to keep his rules even more. And he says to him, he says, we've got a problem here. Legalism has snuck into the church at Jerusalem. Paul deals with it in Galatians. He deals with it in multiple of his letters. That those that they're teaching, they've already dealt with it at the Jerusalem Council a couple of chapters ago. You'll recall we talked about that. Peter went up, remember Titus went up, Paul went up, and they dealt with legalism that had snuck in and was dividing the church. And he says, but we see here they're zealous of the law a misplaced focus, and then we see, which led to misinformed opinions. Because their focus was on rules and the law, it's very easy when our focus is wrong to misinterpret what others are doing and form opinions about their methods or their motives that are completely off base. That's what happened to Paul here. Look in verse 21. And they are informed of thee. (laughs) They are informed of thee. By the way, all of their information was wrong. Isn't it interesting? We can be informed of someone and have a completely wrong, wrong information, but we think we know. 
They are informed of thee, Paul, look at what they've been told, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, that is the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. They're saying, you, 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 you're telling Jewish Christians that they shouldn't do anything in the Old Testament. Now here's the problem, that couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, Paul had taken, and, and some of his, his co-laborers, he had had them follow some of those guidelines so that they could preach the gospel and not be a stumbling block. Paul had taken a vow back a couple of chapters ago. He took a vow himself. He, he, he was not against the law. He was against people putting the law over Christ. And so they say, they've heard that you're telling everybody not to do things the way they grew up and not to, not to, not to sing the songs they sang and to eat the food they ate and to, 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 to dress the way that they dressed. You're telling everybody not to follow these cultural customs and traditions. By the way, it was wrong. It was misinformed opinions. And it's amazing to me how many people have strong opinions about other Christians they've never spoken to and other ministries they've never visited. I've had people visit Liberty meet the people here and, and enjoy the services and tell me later, I was so pleasantly surprised by what I found here. I had an impression of what it would be and I was way off. Be careful. Be careful forming misinformed opinions about somebody from their social media, from what a friend told you, from what a, a, a relative, be careful about that. And he says, here's what it is. And so, 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 so we see here, Paul has, has had people misinformed about him. Be careful. My father-in-law has told the story hundreds of times probably when he was growing up with his two sisters. He would, he would hear something or find something out and he would go and try to tell his dad, well, Jill did this or Judy did this. And his dad's famous response would be this. He would tell him, Jack, keep your own backyard clean. That's a great illustration, just a great statement, a great, a great picture. You know, I've got enough in my backyard. I've got enough in my family of seven to worry about. I've got enough in this church to worry about. I don't need to pastor someone else's church. I've got enough in my family of seven that I need to worry about. I don't need to, I don't need to fix your family. And the same, be hey, pastor, keep your own backyard clean. Christian, keep your own backyard clean. Uh, friend, keep your own backyard clean. And then we see, they come up with this idea, a man-made solution. They say, we gotta figure out, so there's a problem, Paul. You're not real popular in town here in Jerusalem. Everybody thinks you're standing against everything we believe. Verse 22. What is it there for? What are we gonna do? The multitude must needs come together. We've gotta to bring this thing together or we're gonna be in trouble. We're gonna have, have major problems. For they will hear that thou art come. Basically, they're saying, Paul, you're not a real popular guy. And when, when word gets out that you're here, we're going to have a problem on our hands. Let's fix it. Let's figure out the, the solution. Look at verse number, uh, let's see, where were we there? Verse number 23. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. They've taken a Nazarite vow. It's about a 30-day process they were going through. Verse 24. Them take... And purify thyself with them. Because Paul had come from Gentile cities, he had to go, he had to go seven days of purification before he could, he could partake in some of the Jewish customs and cultures there. And it says, and be at charges with them. That just means we want you to pay the very high expense of all of their, their vow process. We want you to pay for it. 
that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from strangled, from fornication. That's a reference back to the Jerusalem Council a couple chapters ago when they decided. Remember that? The, Gent- the Gentiles were scared because people were telling them, you've got to become a, a, a basically a Hasidic Jew. You've got to become this Orthodox Jew to, to be accepted by God. And, and remember, Paul went and they said, you don't have to do any of those things. Just don't, don't, don't eat. Be careful on some of that. Don't get involved in fornication. Just three or four guidelines for the Gentiles, and we can have unity in the church. We, we preached on that a few weeks ago. So he says here, here's the man-made solution. All right, here's what we're going to do. We've got four guys going through this very important Jewish process. Why don't you pay for it? And you go be kind of a part of it with them. You purify yourself. You're by their sides. Let people see that you're not against what we're doing here. Let's do that. By the way, their man-made solution is not going to work. But they think if we do this, then maybe everybody will, will let them go. May I just stop and say here, Paul had not done anything that had been accused of him. He had never told Gentile or Jewish believers to, to forsake their upbringings in those ways, these cultures and these traditions. He, had not, he was not guilty of anything that people were saying about him. And what was his response then when they said, here, go do this. He didn't have to do this. Why should I have to do this? I, I, you guys are the ones with the problem, not me. He could have responded in, defensively. He could have responded in anger. He could have responded trying to justify himself or explain himself. What was Paul's response? His response was humility and love for the sake of the gospel. We see here Paul's humility, verse 26. Paul's humility in verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. You know what Paul said? If that's what it takes to bring unity so we're not fighting over stupid stuff, I'm willing to do that. There's no problem. This, this is, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, compromising the gospel in any way. I'm not going against scripture in any way. If this will help the gospel of Jesus go forward in greater ways in Jerusalem, I'm willing to do something that I wouldn't have chosen to do. I'm willing to do this and go with them so that people can see I don't have an ax to grind. It's all about Jesus. What a great spirit. Humbling himself, doing something that he might not have chosen himself to do so that others could see. It wasn't about Paul and and his preferences and his opinions and his traditions. It was about Jesus. Again, Paul could have said, don't you know who I am? Haven't you seen what I've done? What they're saying about me isn't true. Instead, he humbled himself and served those who had misunderstood him. As I read that, it reminded me of a story I read one time of an evangelist from the 1800s named D.L. Moody. In the late 1880s, D.L. Moody was probably the world's most famous evangelist. He was probably the most well-known evangelist or one of the top few in the world at the time. He would host every year in Northfield, Massachusetts, a a preacher's college. And one year they had a a large group of pastors come from Europe. Now we're not talking about the days of first-class travel. For them to come from Europe to America, this guy is a big deal. We want to learn from and sit at the feet of the D.L. Moody. They got there, and they were in the dormitory there in Northville, Massachusetts. Some of you have undoubtedly heard the name Moody, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, still going to this day, was a college that he founded in the late 1800s. 
And, and he was there at this conference, and as was the custom in Europe, these pastors all put their shoes outside their door at night, expecting that there would be a, a servant or a, a young man that would come by, pick them up, shine them for them, and leave them back uh, at their door. I did that last night. hope my wife would see it. It didn't work, but, but they put their shoes outside, outside the door there. And as Moody walked the halls that night praying for his guests, now it wasn't an American uh, custom, that was a European custom, but he knew, having traveled, he knew why their shoes were outside their doors. And as he walked the halls praying for these pastors that were here, he saw the shoes and he went to a couple of his college students and he mentioned, he said, oh, the pastors that are visiting, they've put their shoes out, out that's, a, that's a custom they're used to, they put them out to get shined and none of the college students uh, kind of volunteered to say, oh, okay, uh, okay, Brother Moody, I'll, I'll go do that. Let me, let me help shine them. None of them kind of volunteered to do that. And so what did he do? Moody gathered up all of the shoes and he took them to his room and he began to shine them. And you say, well, how do you know that? If, if he was doing it humbly, how would you find out? There was a, 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 a companion of his, a co-laborer of his that came to his room knocked on the door to talk with him, and he saw him, and he asked him what he was doing, and that man stopped and helped him do what he was doing, and he later relayed the story, told the story that the man that these men had traveled from Europe to come to his conference, he was the one. While they thought it was some 18, 19-year-old shining their shoes, it was D.L. Moody. By the way, kind of reminds me, what did Jesus do? He washed the feet of his disciples. And then what did he say? As I've done that to you, do that to one another. Serve one another. Live with humility. What a great example from Paul. When attacked, how should we respond with grace and kindness? When falsely accused, don't compromise, but respond in a way that would bring peace and unity. That's what Paul did. He was falsely accused. Now, he didn't, he didn't compromise his doctrine, but he responded in a way that would bring peace and unity. I think there was somebody in the New Testament that said, blessed are the peacemakers. This doesn't mean Paul was weak or timid. He, he didn't back down to pressure or to false teachers. He stood strong for Jesus, but he also sought to bring peace and unity for the sake of the gospel wherever he could. I, I like a statement that I, I read from my brother-in-law in the last couple of weeks. He said, unity is not the cry of compromisers. It is the command of strict scripture. Even better than my brother-in-law saying that, Paul had this to say to the Ephesian Christians. By the way, you're going to see here in a minute, he was talking to some Ephesian Christians. Later on, after this, where he, he humbled himself in this way, while he's sitting in a prison in Rome, he writes the letter to at Ephesus to the, to the Ephesian Christians. And what did he say years after this? Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the what church? Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul lived what he preached and wrote. Humble yourself. Live in peace, in humility, in grace, in kindness. At church, at home, humble yourself. At work, humble yourself. On social media, humble yourself. We become so divisive, and some of it's because we can so easily type things that we would never say to someone to their face. We have this keyboard courage that we can say things we would never say if we were standing face to face, and it's created division and discord. And what did Paul say? Paul said here, he humbled himself and said, if that's what it would help, let's do it. He lived 
what he preached. What an example of how to treat those who have misunderstood you and even spoken falsely about you. Let's, let's continue on. Verse 27, I see their misguided separation. Verse 27. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere. Lie, lie, lie. Not true, false. Teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. He's talking about that's the temple. He's preaching against everything we hold dear. No, he's not. That's not what he believes. He says he hath polluted this holy place. No, he hasn't. Verse 29, for they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Here's, what, here's, where, they got from, here's where they got this idea. They had seen Paul walking in, the, in town with a Gentile. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles had a certain place in the temple they could go to, and they couldn't go beyond it. In fact, it was, a, it was punishable by death if they did. Well, they had seen Paul at Starbucks with a Gentile, and then they had seen Paul at church without a Gentile, and they put two and two together and said, well, if he's willing to go to Starbucks with a Gentile, he must be bringing that Gentile into the temple where he doesn't belong. It wasn't true. They saw one thing, and they came to conclusions. They jumped to conclusions of things that were completely not true. And doesn't that still happen today? And so their misguided separation. We can't fellowship with Paul. He's everything that's wrong with Christianity today. We've got to get away from him. They were what was wrong with Christianity today. Then look at the mistreatment of a good man, verse 30. And all the city was moved and the people ran together. And they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. And forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. The Roman, uh, the Roman officials find out we've got a riot on our hands. Who immediately took soldiers and centurions, plural. That means there were probably hundreds of soldiers led by multiple centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. So they're beating on him and they see soldiers coming. Oh, and they run. They've got to go. Paul's laying there, bloodied and bruised. They, they were trying to kill him. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, prophecy from Agabus last week, and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. So he says, what, what's wrong? Why are we beating this guy up? What did he do wrong? Somebody's saying, well, he was, he was at Starbucks with a Gentile. And somebody else said, well, he brought this Gentile into the temple. And somebody else said, and whatever they were saying, and people are saying different stuff. And he said, I, I got to get to the bottom of this. Let's go. We got, I got to take you back to, the, to the, the Antonio Fortress. Let's go back. Verse number 35. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people, for the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. Again, we talked about this a little last week. Remind you of anybody? Beaten, bloodied, bruised, taken by Roman soldiers, and people crying away with him. What a picture of our Savior. Christ, Paul, living and knowing the fellowship of his suffering. Picture of Jesus. They set out to kill him, but God wasn't done with him. And God used unsaved officials to protect his servant. My last main thought, I want you to see in the story here, a masterful message. Verse 37. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? 
Art not thou that Egyptian? They thought he was another guy that had come and had created a big uproar, um, a, a man that had come in, which before these days made us an uproar and led us out into the wilderness, 4,000 men that were murderers. We thought that's who you were. But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, I'm begging you, suffer me to speak unto the people. Isn't that an interesting phrase? In the middle of just about trying to be, they, they just about killed him. They wanted to kill him. His thought was, can I just talk to them? Still concerned for their souls. Still concerned for their faith. Still concerned for, for what God was doing in their lives. Not concerned about his own injuries. Can I just talk to the people before you take me up? Can I just talk to them? Can I let them know the truth? Can I point them to Jesus? Can I talk to them? Verse 40. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. And I won't go for the sake of time. I'm not going to read. You could go the next 21 verses of chapter 22. You can read it this week if you'd like. He then begins to speak. And I'll summarize it for you in just a moment. But I want us to think about what was Paul's response when he was lied about, falsely accused, misunderstood, wrong motives, and even wrong doctrine was, 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 was attributed to him? What was his response? What would yours be? What would mine be? Hatred? Anger? Disdain? Defeat? Discouragement? Paul responds in love, not anger. And you can read it for yourself this week, the first 21 message, uh, verses of his message. He speaks truth without attack. When falsely accused and unjustly attacked, be careful you don't stoop to others' level. As Irishman George Bernard Shaw said so perfectly, he said, I learned long ago never to wrestle with a pig. You get dirty, and besides, the pig likes it. <laughs> what did Paul, Paul didn't stoop to their level. What did he do? I'll summarize it for you. Paul lets them know, basically, that he was once like them, seeking to put Christians to death. He talks about the fact that he was there when Stephen died, the first martyr. He was a Jew of the Jews, and he consented unto countless Christians' beatings and deaths. And then he shares his testimony, how Jesus drastically changed his life as he walked along the road to Damascus. Look at verse number four, if you will. Just a few verses. I won't read the whole thing, but look at verse number four. He said, I persecuted this way. I, I was the one that was beating up Christians unto the death. Verse five, also the high priest that bear me witness. I received letters unto the brethren, went to Damascus. For, to, to, uh, I was going to bring them which were bound unto Jerusalem to be punished. And it came to pass as I made my journey and was come nigh to Damascus about noon, there shone a light from heaven, a great light round about me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I was like you, but Jesus changed my life. He changed my activities. He changed my thinking. He changed my perspective. He changed my heart. I was you. Let Je What is Paul saying? Let Jesus change you. I, I, was, I was even better than you as it relates to and the scale of persecutors. I put more people to death than any of you. And Jesus changed me. What a masterful message. 
Verse 14, he says, he said, the God of our fathers hath chosen thee, speaking of Paul, that thou shouldest know his will and see the just one. Verse 15, for thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. What is he saying? You've got me all wrong, but that's okay because there was a time that I had Christians all wrong too. And Jesus changed my life. And he says, let Jesus change you. I told you a little bit of a different message. We kind of have to understand this pivot of Paul's ministry, kind of just laying the foundation. So I give you, we, we pulled out a few things throughout. Maybe there was something that spoke to you, your thanksgiving, your rejoicing, your, your humility when attacked. I don't know, I'm not gonna recap the whole message. Maybe there was something there, but as we tie it all back together, as we look at Paul entering a new season, as we're entering different seasons in our lives, There'll be seasons of offensive victory and seasons where attacks put us on the defense. Paul had one focus for a decade. Now he's going to have another focus to the end of his life. When those things come as believers, I'm going to give us just these final thoughts. We should be, much like the Apostle Paul, we need to be ready to suffer. What did he say? I'm not gonna, verse 13, we saw it last week. What did he say? I'm ready. I'm ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem. We need to remember in the different seasons of life, that the Christian life following Jesus isn't always going to be a life of ease. We need to be ready to suffer whatever God has for us. Not only that, we need to be ready to serve. What did Paul do when attacked? He served. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? You've heard it's been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This is what is supposed to separate the followers of Christ. We serve those who don't deserve it. Why? Because Christ was the ultimate servant who served us when we didn't deserve it. We love those who don't deserve it because we've received love we don't deserve. And we forgive those who we de others deem unforgivable because we've received forgiveness we never deserved or should have received. Simply put, Christ in us should change how we treat those around us. So ready to suffer, ready to serve, and ready to speak. What did he do? He said, can I please tell him how Jesus changed my life? Peter said it in 1 Peter 3, but, in, if, but and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God, in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer, a defense, an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. You've heard me say this, I coach high school basketball, and if we're beating a team and the other team's really mad and in a bad spirit and they're, they're, it's kind of getting dirty and it's getting ugly, I'll tell my guys in a timeout, I'll say, guys, don't, don't, quit talking, because sometimes our guys are like their coach, they'll talk. I'll say, quit talking. Quit talking trash. And I'll say, I'll say let your play do the talking. I'll say, and then I'll say this, especially if we're winning. I don't say this if we're losing, but if we're winning, I'll say, let the scoreboard do the talking. Let the scoreboard do the talking. And, and when I, if you put that last verse back up there from 1 Peter, if you will, I, I kind of see it here. The, let's, it says having a good conscience, whereas they speak evil of you. They're, they're talking trash, if, if you will. They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Let your life do the talking. Your spirit. Love them with the love of Christ. Defense wins championships. May I, may I just say... 
It's important to be able to defend our faith. Peter said, be ready always to give an answer because a faith that can't be defended is a faith that very likely will be defeated. You and I have got to be ready to suffer, to serve, even those that have hurt us, and to speak, speak for Christ anywhere we get the opportunity. Defense, sometimes different seasons. Paul's moving into a new season. And I'm so glad that he did because from this season, multiple of our New Testament books and letters are gonna come out of this season. We're going to learn much doctrine as Paul defends his faith in the final seven chapters of Acts. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.